tonight I wanted to continue, um, if you recall, like last week, because it was the end of the month, we were doing some stuff on journaling because I wanted to get a, I promised some folks that I would do a more formal talk on that. So last week we talked about reflection and mindfulness and journaling and the significance of that. Um, but the weeks before that, we've been talking about cultivating the enlightenment factors and sustaining our positive behaviors and our positive emotions. And so there's still a couple we haven't done, which is our pleasure emotions, our joy and rapture or joy and calm, depending on how you translate. Um, so I did want to get back to those two. Uh, but, bef but before that, I wanted to do some review of some concepts. One of the things that I mentioned early on when we started up uh, Wednesday Wake Up is that I wanted to talk about integrating ideas for you all, um, particularly because I feel like as people progress in the practice and as they become more mature as meditators, oftentimes they don't get the support to go deeper. So it's very common for students to approach me and ask for one-on-one -on -one help. Uh, oftentimes because they're they're needing some deeper dive and they're not quite sure what it is. And, and one of the things I just wanted to make sure that we do here to challenge folks to go deeper in practice is to gain a, a more coherent understanding of, of what the Dharma means and what the terms mean in our vocabulary. And so for me, in part, that means bringing in multiple ideas into a single Dharma talk and interconnecting them for you so you can see how the puzzle of the Dharma connects. For me, the, the Dharma is like a giant puzzle and all the pieces fit together, the eight folds of the path and the seven enlightenment factors. Um, so one of the things I am going to do tonight is just interconnect a few things for us all. Um, and this will help us get us, it will sort of help get us situated to continue to talk about how to cultivate pleasure. Um, but I wanted to give us some background tonight. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about wise view. This is something most of us are familiar with. I also wanted to touch on the Four Noble Truths and how Wise View and Four Noble Truths interconnect a little bit. Um, and then depending on how much I talk, um, kind of bringing this together with what we call fabrication, which is how we create emotions in our practice, positive emotions for the most part, how we deal with the way that our heart and mind creates our experience. It's such a big part of meditation and it's such a big part of, of maturing in practice is learning how to change what's happening. This is often why I invite you to change your breathing and notice how breathing affects mood and how breathing affects emotion. Because as we get more skilled at mindfulness, we can consciously cultivate states of mind. This is hugely helpful if we're sick or if we're in pain, if we're feeling emotional distress. Learning to cultivate positivity through meditation, directly through our meditation, is just a great gift that the Dharma offers. And we just don't often hear about how to do it and how to do it successfully. Um, so I do want to make sure I continue on that journey to talk about how we cultivate pleasure. Um, but I do want to talk a, a few about a few terms that I think we need to understand in a little more depth in order for it to make um, better sense for us and give us the skills we need to go deeper in our practice. And this just helps the, the more... Um, the students who've been sitting a while to get a deeper dive and for more beginning students to kind of see what's up ahead and to challenge us to to push ourselves just slightly beyond where we're at in practice. Um, my first teacher, Goenkaji, used to say that it's that it's good to, to have your Dharma talks kind of equal to your practice, but on occasion you want to go a little bit further than that so you can learn on what's ahead, what's around the next bend, like you're taking a drive and you want to kind of anticipate what the next curve is going to be, what the next um, lookout point is, so to speak, the view. So we'll do a little bit of that today, and we'll see we'll see where we land. This may be a, a two-part Dharma talk. <laughs> we'll see. Um, so let, let's start with wise view. I want to talk about wise view because it's so important. Um, it's what makes the Buddha Dharma so unique in history, uh, how the view of the Buddha came about. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what that view is, and most of you are going to be familiar with this, but it's just a nice review. So there's a few ways that I that I tend to talk about wise view. Wise view is the first fold of the Eightfold Path. So the, the Eightfold Path begins with this idea of having a skillful or wise view. And this is just a worldview. It's how we approach the world in general, and it's how we understand uh, what's guiding us through the world. So this thing called wise view, and what wise view does, wise view encourages skillful behaviors. 
a skillful view encourages skillful behaviors. So sometimes we hear the word skillful, sometimes we use the word wise, um, sometimes it's called noble view. But wise view or skillful view, what it's designed to do is encourage us to behave in a way that, that leads to awakening. It's designed for us to look at the world in a way that encourages us to be kind, to be honest, to be authentic, and to practice regularly. Wise view encourages us to uh, stick to the path, to be to be courageous, um, to persevere. Wise view encourages us to be kind and gentle, awake and aware, moment to moment. And that's our, our overview of this kind of thing we call wise view. And wise view is important because most of our views are unconscious. Most of the way we view the world is unconscious, and it's these unconscious views that lead to unconscious behaviors. And it's the unconscious behaviors that get us into trouble. So we want to cultivate skillful views. We want to replace our unconscious views and our mindless views with wakeful views, skillful views, mindful views. And so that's why it's so important because it's our, it's our unconscious habit patterns and behaviors that really trip us up in our relationships, in the way we behave in the world, how we are with our friends and our family and our children. And so it's these unconscious views that we're trying to unravel and replace with something a little more skillful, a little more intentional, if you will. And I want to give you some examples of how views encourage behaviors. And it's kind of obvious, but I think it's helpful to really reflect on this a little bit. And I'm going to give, um, give some examples that we come across in the real world of conflicting views and how conflicting views change our behaviors. So something very simple, something very simple. Um, today was garbage day in our community uh, in this neck of the woods in Portland. And so last night I wheeled out the recycle bin and recycle bin was full. And today someone came by and picked it up. Now, the behavior that I have to recycle is based on a view I have of the world. Part of the view I have of the world is that we're in interconnected and that what I do with my garbage affects people other than myself. And I want to recycle so we have less pollution, not just for me, but because I have a view of the world that we're interconnected and it's important for me to do my part. So this simple behavior of wheeling this cart out every week of recycled materials is in part an expression of the way I see the world and the way I see myself in that world. I believe that we're interconnected and that we all need to do our part because my behaviors impact others. So if I'm going to consume materials... I feel like it's my obligation to then recycle those materials because otherwise this stuff goes into a landfill and the next thing you know it washes up on a shore somewhere and it becomes somebody else's quote-unquote problem. So my small action of wheeling out this recycle bin is based on the fact that I see the world in a particular way. If I don't see myself interconnected, if I don't see the connection between a plastic bottle in my garbage and washing up on a shore somewhere, if I don't see that in my worldview, there'd be no reason for me to recycle. I might say to myself, who cares? This is not my problem. It's not connected to anything. So the smallest behaviors in our lives are brought about, encouraged, and supported by the fact that we have these background views that drive our behavior. So me recycling has to do with how I see myself in the world. There's a view at play there. Another example, um, I came across recently. So I'm a social worker uh, in my other life and all the social work agencies I've ever, ever worked at, they're all funded by grants from the state, from the government, from donations. And in times like these, money gets, money gets cut, of course, uh, to social service agencies. Now, there's a view that says we should cut social service funding. It's a view about what we value in the world and what we think is significant. And so what's interesting about money for social services is that certain people in the world feel like it is not the responsibility of the government to care for us, right? It's the responsibility of ourselves. We have to care for ourselves. There is a view that looks at social services as being irrelevant, not helpful, a waste of money, a waste of time, and... Sometimes in that view, we look at people and say, people need to help themselves. The government is not responsible for taking care of people. If you hold that view, then you may vote to cut funding, right? 
If you believe that we are interconnected and that we are responsible for each other and that we can, as a community, care for each other and help those that are disenfranchised or in need, then you might have the behavior of supporting something like the program I work for, which is a homeless prevention program. And so there is a view that people have that makes them or informs their decision to fund or not form a homeless prevention program. We sometimes we look at the decisions and we get angry at the decisions or we say, I don't like this decision and I wish the decision was different. It's really helpful to know that decisions do not exist in a vacuum. Decisions exist inside views. That's why it's so important that we get in touch with how we see the world because our views are the guiding light of our behaviors. So when we see things that are going on in the world that we disagree with or we don't like, oftentimes what we're really disagreeing with is the view. It is the view that is fueling the behavior. This is why the Buddha talks about wise view as being the first part of the path. I just saw a cat. It looks like a cat's jumping on your head, Kate. <laughs> That's great. Um, so our views are really important because our views fuel our behaviors, both positive and negative. Our views of the world can encourage us to kindness. It encourages us to connectivity. It can encourage us to take care of each other, or it can do the opposite right? It can lead us away from that love and away from that light, away from that compassion. So this is why views are so important. They're unconscious, they're behind the scenes, but they support our decision making. This is one of the things that we're seeing currently. Um, and this is the, the sort of last example I have. But if you're looking online, you'll you'll see on the news and all of the threads that are going around, there's this big debate now about wearing masks. Should we wear masks? Should we not wear masks? Is it kind to wear a mask to protect uh, other people? And if you look at the reasons people choose to wear masks or not wear masks, it's because they have a particular view. Their decision to wear a mask is based on how they view the world. It's based on how they view community. It's based on how they view the role of government. There are unconscious views at play. So for example, and some of you have seen, uh, there was a sign that flash by on one of the feeds where someone had a sign that said, I don't know what it's something to the effect of give me liberty or give me COVID kind of thing, which was essentially saying, I have this view that I don't want to be told what to do, right? That's a view. And I am so committed to that view that I'm not going to wear the mask, even if wearing the mask protects other people from getting sick because my view is so strong. And I'm so attached to the view that the behavior is an inevitable consequence. So, and, I, and I'm not saying that to call people out. I'm, I'm, I'm calling out the view, not the person. We have a cultural view that we're not responsible for each other or that we don't have a duty to care for each other. And so there are some views that encourage actions like that. And then there are other views where people say, you know, I might be sick and not know it. And I have this view that I want to be responsible for other people and I want to care for other people. So even though it's inconvenient and I don't like it and it doesn't look very cool, I'm going to wear the mask because wearing the mask is going to protect you from me if I have something and I don't know it. If I have COVID and I don't know it, I have this view. So if you look at it as conflict of, of views, it's much easier to understand. It's not about the behaviors. It's about the behaviors being informed by views and people just have different views. And so in these times, we see views manifesting as behaviors. And sometimes these behaviors, when they're informed by particular views, can harm people, right? People can get hurt because the behaviors are rooted in these unskillful views. And so this is what, what the Buddha is talking about, that we need to really pay attention to how our views inform our behaviors. Are the views I have about my role in the world conducive to compassion, conducive to caring, conducive to connectivity? Or are the views I have of the world and my role in it harming people inadvertently even? Are they harming people out of my own ignorance for how that impact plays itself out in the world? So it just depends on the views. And this is why we have to be so careful about how we look at our role as humans in this human community, right? Especially now when everything is so interconnected with something like a pandemic. So these are just the things I'm seeing go around. I'm seeing a conflict of views, being a Dharma teacher. It's just, this is the way my mind processes looking at things as they go by. Again, the Buddha said that 
our unconscious habits really need to be taken into account because we can unconsciously harm each other and unconsciously harm ourselves if we're not careful. Now, the Buddha had four famous views that he encouraged us to take on, which are the foundation of this particular spiritual practice, which we call the Dharma, right? The Buddha's Dharma. And they're called the Four Noble Truths. Now, most of us are familiar with the Four Noble Truths, but I'm going to frame it a little differently today and would invite you to consider that the Four Noble Truths are actually views. They're Four Noble Views. They're views of the world. They're ways of looking at the world that encourage us to be loving, kind, and compassionate, and free. And so the Four Noble Truths are, the first Noble Truth is that there is suffering. The second Noble Truth is that there's a cause of suffering. The third Noble Truth says that there is a cure or a way out of suffering. Or another way of looking at it, there's a way into happiness. There's a path out of our dukkha, of our stress and our discontent that leads to happiness. And then there's a path. There's a journey that we go on that leads us to a life of grace and ease and equanimity and joy. This is the path, the Four Noble Truths. And so these Four Noble Truths are considered skillful. And the Buddha encourages us to adopt these views because these views encourage us to act in the world in a particular way. They support particular actions. And this is what I'm trying to stress today is that our views are tied to our actions and the Dharma encourages particular views because we're looking to act in a particular way. We're looking to behave in a particular way. When I show up in relationship to you, I want that to be skillful. I want my relationship to you to be authentic and loving and kind. And by taking on these four noble truths, these views, it encourages that to happen. It increases the possibility that everyone in this room has kind and gentle and loving relationships with each other. And then those relationships, of course, become a beacon for other people in the world to have those experiences as they share in the merits of our kind and compassionate relationships. So our Four Noble Truths are a type of view. They arise out of this thing we call wise view. So I wanted to, to really share with you specifically, and I don't know if I've done this in other talks, but I wanted to share with you the actions that are associated with the Four Noble Truths, because this is where the rubber meets the road for the Dharma. So if you look at the four, First Noble Truth, the First Noble Truth says, there is suffering. There is suffering in human existence. Now, another word for suffering is dukkha. It could also be translated as stress, discontent, unsatisfactoriness. It doesn't have to be huge suffering. It's the whole spectrum of human suffering. It could be anything from my foot itches to I have a real bad disease or something minor but uncomfortable like I have to shelter at home or my car broke down or this or that. So it's any, any of the discontent we experience is incorporated into this first noble truth. And the first noble truth encourages us to have a particular view of suffering. And what that view is, is that suffering is a doorway to freedom. Suffering and discontent is a doorway to freedom. If you look at suffering as a doorway to freedom, you will lean into suffering and you will look at suffering as something that can be educational. It can be something that can lead to happiness. If you view suffering as something that should not be the case, then we tend to run away from suffering. We run to the future. We run to the past. We pull away from the discontent and we try to distract ourselves. We could distract ourselves with social media. We distract ourselves with drugs and alcohol. We distract ourselves with any sensual pleasure. The Buddha encourages us to adopt the view of looking at suffering as a way out rather than a way, <laughs> a way in to more suffering, right? So that's the view. The view is, hey, if I look at the world as suffering is a natural part of it, then I can lean into this suffering. And instead of saying, this shouldn't be happening, I say, oh, look, here's an opportunity for awakening. Here's an opportunity to be more loving. Here's an opportunity to be more kind, more generous, more grateful. So this view encourages and supports a very positive attitude towards the discontent that all of us experience as human beings. This view, this first noble truth encourages us to behave in a particular way because this behavior leads to liberation, to awakening, to more compassion and more joy. So that's the action. The action of the first noble truth is 
Oh my gosh, look, there's discontent in my life. Let me use this as an opportunity to be free. Now, the second noble truth says that there's a cause to all of our suffering. There's a cause to suffering. Now, this sometimes is a little abstract for folks, so I'll see. I'll do the best I can to make it to make it coherent. Um, what the Buddha really means by the second noble truth, what he means by the second noble truth, is that suffering is not arbitrary. Now, remember that the suffering in the Dharma is not physical pain. Suffering is a psychological discontent. It's not like pain, like broken leg. Dukkha is psychological. Dukkha is the emotional turmoil that comes with physical stuff. So that's the, uh, another thing to remember, um, that dukkha is not like physical pain. Dukkha is the psychological response to the unpleasant conditions. And so when the Buddha says there's a cause to suffering, what he's saying is that it's not arbitrary. It's not random. It's not being, it's not your fate, it's not your destiny. There's an actual cause to it, something that can be known and learned through mindfulness practice. So, for example, if, if I have a car, I guess we could use this as an example. If I have a car and the car breaks down and I think to myself, cars can't be fixed. There's no cause of the problem. The problem is just there and I can't do anything about it. Well, then I probably just have to give my car away and get a new one. I can't do anything. But if I think to myself, oh, there's a problem here that has a cause, then I'm inspired to go seek out the cause so I can eradicate it. So looking at suffering as having a cause inspires us to walk the path. It inspires us to practice meditation. It inspires us to practice insight. The cause of suffering that statement that the Buddha says that there really is a cause is good news for us because it allows us to, to begin a journey down a path that could lead to the third noble truth, which is the cure, which is the release from the suffering. If we look at ourselves, and this can happen in religious traditions or cultural traditions, when you look at suffering as something that's a punishment, something that you're condemned to, something that there's no way out of, non-causal, then it doesn't really inspire you to take any kind of action to get out. So the reason the Buddha really emphasized the fact that there is a cause of suffering is to inspire you to look for that cause so that you can seek a way out. It's supposed to be inspirational. It's supposed to be motivational. And it was also very much at the time of the Buddha, there were certain um, religious cults um, and, and religious groups that said that there was no way out of suffering that there's no way for a human being in our limited capacity to actually know the cause of happiness, the true cause of happiness, or the true cause of suffering. And that any kind of spiritual practice that went out seeking the cause was a waste of time. So historically, the Buddha was speaking to what was going on in his world where he was surrounded by folks who were saying, what's the point of trying to find a cause of happiness? You can't find a cause of happiness. You just It's not something you're going to be able to figure out. So the second noble truth is supposed to be an inspiring incentive for us to practice. It's supposed to remind us that it's not a punishment. It is a, um, it's an avenue for awakening and that a cause can be known. So this completely sort of lands us in the lap of the third noble truth, which says there is a way out of suffering or another way of looking at it. There is a path to happiness. There is a cause of suffering, and a cause of happiness. And it can be known in the hearts and minds of humans. Human beings have the capacity to know freedom. So our third noble truth says there's a cure. And I can give you another perspective here. Imagine if, um, well, yeah, I guess we, we could use this because this is a timely one. Let's say we have a disease and we say to ourselves, okay, this disease has a cause. Knowing that it has a cause makes us search for the cure. It inspires us. We're like, we're going to track down the cause of this. And so we're inspired to do that. Now, just because we're on the, the heels of the cause doesn't mean we found it yet. It takes work. We have to figure out what that cause is in order to figure out what the cure actually is. Now, let us suppose um, I have a challenge in my life. Let's, let's do an, a real abstract, ridiculous one. Let's say... Um, I have a problem in my life and it turns out that there is a cause of the problem, but the cause of the problem is on another planet or in another dimension and I can't do anything about it. 
There's a cause, but there's no way I'm ever going to be able to figure out the cure. I know that there's a cause of it, but I can't do anything about it. Again, there wouldn't be much motivation to do anything. The Buddha's third noble truth is the declaration that he figured it out for himself and that every human being has the innate capacity to be free. The third noble truth says, I did it. I was able to actually find the cure. Not only was there a cause, but I was able to find out what that cause was. And through my own efforts, through my own meditation practice, through the cultivation of love and joy and equanimity, I was able to actually be free. And so again, these four noble truths or four views are designed to inspire us to practice and to walk the path. They're designed to support us in moving forward with our own awakening. So the third noble truth is really the Buddha's declaration, hey, I figured it out. Not only was there a cause, but I did it. And I am just like you. You can do this if you practice the same things that I practiced. So it's supposed to be normalizing. It's supposed to be humanizing. It's supposed to say the answer isn't far off on some other planet or in the arms of a deity or in the arms of some other human being even, right? The cure is here. It's in our own hearts. It's in our own minds. So not only is there a cause, we are actually a part of the problem. So we can actually be liberated. We can, through our own agency, be free. So our first, second, and third noble truths inspire us to practice. It encourages us to take suffering and to take stress and to take things that are uncomfortable in our lives, lean into them, explore them, find the causes, and to find the cure in our own heart and mind to be free. And the Four Noble Truths, these views, encourage us to do this on a daily basis. Now, the Fourth Noble Truth is just the path. The Fourth Noble Truth says, there is a journey you can go on that can lead you to understanding this cause and this cure of happy of, of suffering, or it can lead you on a path to happiness if you want to look at it more in a positive light. So we've got these Four Noble Truths, these views that are inspiring us to incur, to engage in particular behaviors. Now, if you think of it in its opposite, and again, I'm playing off what I talked about earlier with Wise View, uh, I recycle my cans because I have a certain view of the world. I also practice meditation every day because I subscribe to the Four Noble Truths. I believe in my own experience that meditation can get me in touch with the cause of happiness and that by meditating regularly, I can be liberated and that I can become a kinder and gentler person. So these four noble truths I imbibe every day by sitting on the cushion, by showing up here to share the Dharma with you, engaging in group meditations with you. Every time we all come together, we're here together tonight because we all share a view. We share a view that coming here is nourishing and that coming here is going to make us better people, that it's going to have a sense of self-care, a sense of nourishment. That is the embodiment of the Four Noble Truths. We are all here tonight because we believe, to some degree, that these views are worth our time, worth our energy, worth our commitment, because meditation, as we know, isn't the easiest thing to do. It's certainly not the easiest thing to do regularly, um, but here we are, week to week, coming together. And we're here together because we have a certain view, and we've accepted, to some degree, that this view is skillful and beneficial to us. So we have these wise views, these four noble views, these four noble truths that encourage us to look at suffering as a way to liberation and that we at least have some faith, so to speak, that practicing insight meditation and coming together and doing it in this way in a loving and kind community will lead to some beneficial uh, outcome for ourselves, some beneficial behaviors. One of the benefits of this Wednesday Wake Up group is that so many people are suffering from stress and anxiety and depression, feeling that heaviness of the pandemic and social isolation and the sheltering at home. And here we are benefiting from our view that in this time we can come together, right, to practice. To, to practice. So here we are decreasing the stress of being in the pandemic by coming together in Sangha. This is the actual four, fourth noble truth, which is the path. Here we are embodying the path by coming together and caring for each other and loving each other and practicing together in this environment. So here we are embodying the Four Noble Truths as we sit here tonight uh, and share and listen and meditate. So that's the background that I was talking about earlier of wanting you to understand the connection between wise view and the Four Noble Truths. 
the Four Noble Truths being versions of views. Now, the last thing I wanted to talk about was this Third Noble Truth in regards to our, um, let's see, how do I want to do this? I want to talk about the Third Noble Truth as far as the cure for suffering. Uh, I'll talk about it in this way. So the Third Noble Truth says that there is a cure for suffering, but more specifically, it says that the cause or cure for suffering is the qualities of our heart and mind. And that's such that's so great because we can cultivate different qualities of heart and mind. We can participate in our world differently to get different results. And so this is really, really important because there are three ways that the Buddha encouraged us to explore this cure. The Buddha encouraged us in three different ways to participate in our moment-to-moment experience. And he encouraged us to do this in ways that would cultivate joy and tranquility and just happiness factors essentially pleasure if you will and i want to go through go through these three things because we don't really talk about them that often and the buddha says and you've heard this a term before because i've talked about this um in the past that the buddha's word for the way we participate in the present moment is called fabrication in modern language it would be co-creation I like to say that we shape our experience or that we participate in the shaping of our experience. And the Pali word is sankara, which means a reaction, that we react to the present moment in a way and that creates a mood. So if I um, am having a bad day, right, if I'm not feeling very well and I think a particular way or speak a particular way, that can incur more suffering for myself. That reaction is called a sankara, or a fabrication. The way we engage the present moment has a direct impact on our mood and the way our heart is, the way our physical body is. And so the Buddha, for the Third Noble Truth, encouraged us to look at three things that human beings do moment to moment that really, really impact how we feel, right? How we have an identity, how we experience. And the first one is, of course, our body. We call this bodily fabrication. The way we carry our body in the world impacts how we feel moment to moment. And so there's a few things I wanted to just remind ourselves about the body. And of course, the body is the first foundation of mindfulness. So we get a lot about the body in Buddhism. But there's a few ways I want you to consider this. And I I did some research on this. I had seen some articles a a year or so back on uh, the relationship between how human beings carry their posture and how it directly correlates to mood. And so I wanted to share a couple of these with you because the Buddha says we really need to pay attention about how we bring our body into the present moment. So a couple things to remember that keeping the body upright, keeping the spine straight, which is what we do when we are in meditation, keeping the spine upright can increase our breath capacity by 30%, which means increase oxygen right? Which means increased nutrition, right? Which means increased positive brain chemicals. So breathing with a slouch is less effective than if we keep our shoulders back and our neck straight and our spine upright. So when the Buddha says the way we carry our body affects our happiness level, it is absolutely true that even the physical posture, right? If we slouch, not so good for breathing. So keeping our body upright and being mindful of this can increase mood. Now, the other thing, they did a study that showed the more you hunch over, the more it actually increases irritability throughout your day. So they did a study that related hunching over with crankiness in people. And so the more hunched over we are during the day, the more cranky we become. And this has to do with the energy along the spine. So what's interesting is that the Buddha suggested 3,000 years ago to pay attention to how we carry our body into the present moment because how we carry our bodies affects our mood. So this is just some modern science here on how, how that is. So our posture is really important. Body fabrication. We can change the way we feel by changing how we are physically in the moment. Another thing that they uh, studied was anxiety and depression. Better posture 
less anxiety, less depression. So again, having good posture is really important as we move through the world for our happiness levels. And since we're all about happiness with the Dharma, this is something we want to pay attention to. One last thing about body that I thought was really interesting is that the way you carry your body throughout your day is directly correlated to your self-confidence. Slouching shoulders, leaning back like this versus an outright posture, upright posture, directly connected to your self-confidence levels. They did an experiment where people went in for job interviews and did different postures before they went into the job interview. Those who had the healthier upright posture, far more self-confident in going into the job interview. Our posture is directly correlated to our well-being. So the Buddha calls this bodily fabrication, which means the way we hold our bodies directly affects our happiness. It's rarely talked about, but I think it's really important to remember. Now, the second part of this that you probably already know and you've heard me say, your breathing and how you breathe changes your mood. Part of the reason I encourage you to take three long, slow, deep breaths when you start your meditation is so you can see clearly that changing your breathing changes your hormones, your heart rate, blood pressure, and again, it changes your neurochemicals. How we breathe changes how we feel. So learning to breathe slowly, attentively, deeply changes our happiness levels. And this all falls under the body because it's the body breathing. So it's interesting that the Buddha through meditation understood that we should be really aware of our posture and our breathing as we move throughout the day. Because that third noble truth, that cure for unhappiness and cure for discontent, might be in one moment the way we're holding ourselves physically. And we can certainly encourage happiness to arise more frequently if we're mindful of our posture, mindful of bodily fabrication and how our bodies are present as we move through our day. It's important for me because I spend a lot of time on computers, so I'm hunched over quite a bit. The second fabrication is called verbal fabrication. And I know I've talked about this before, but I'll talk about it again just for a minute or two. Verbal fabrication is how we talk to ourselves. It's that inner dialogue in our head. And what's so important about the inner dialogue, as everyone here knows, negative self-talk. It's so easy to hop on a negative self-talk train and get into a bad mood or a self-deprecating mood. And it's so easy to ride that train for several hours or several days or several years for some of us. The way we talk to ourselves is really important. It's totally connected to our self-concept, our self-esteem, and how we feel day to day. So that third noble truth, which says there's a cause for suffering, sometimes it, the cause of suffering in the present moment is a verbal fabrication. It's a story we're telling about how we're not lovable. It's a story we're telling about how I'm not good enough. It's a story we're telling about ourselves about how I'll never be able to succeed or I'll never be able to overcome something. Our verbal fabrications can be so devastating and weigh us down day in and day out. And they're so believable. I can't remember who said this, but someone had once said, um, our verbal fabrications are so believable because they're in our own voice. And I thought that was really remarkable that our inner dialogue, we believe ourselves when we say we're not good enough, even though we've probably inherited that idea from a circumstance, from someone in our lives who was being unskillful, who encouraged us to believe that we were unlovable, unskillful, or incapable of doing something. And then we adopt that voice and we chant it to ourselves. And we chant it over and over and we begin to believe that it's true. So bodily fabrication and verbal fabrication. How are you physically showing up in the world? How are you thinking about the world in the present moment? Is it a negative self-talk? Is it a positive self-talk? Loving kindness meditation is a verbal fabrication. It's a positive verbal fabrication. That's why we do it. May all beings be happy. May I be happy. May all beings be free from suffering. That is a verbal fabrication. That is a positive thought stream that if we practice regularly, opens the heart. As the Buddha said, it delights the heart. 
It gladdens the heart is another way of saying it. So any one of us, if you've ever practiced loving kindness, which I know everyone in this digital Dharma hall has done, you've practiced verbal fabrication and you know some of its benefits. And I know because everyone in this room is a human, I know you've also practiced negative self-talk or negative verbal fabrication and you know what that's like as well. So verbal fabrication is really important. Our stories are so believable. And with meditation practice and being mindful of what those stories are, we can insert stories of loving kindness. I'm capable. I'm lovable. I am able to do this. I'm worthy of being loved. I'm worthy of kindness. I'm worthy of safety and security. We can practice positive verbal fabrication to encourage happiness in our lives. And with practice, that habit becomes sustainable. The habit becomes sustainable. And that's what the Buddha talked about is we cultivate positive, skillful habits. And a view that I am worthy can lead to a habit of worthiness, of feeling worthy day in and day out. The last fabrication that we have is called mental. This one's a little more abstract, um, but the easiest way to define it, and it, it can get very complicated, but the easiest way to define it is that verbal fabrication are the words, how you talk to yourself. Mental fabrication is imaginings in the most simplest way. It's more complicated than that, but just for now, let's just say the mental fabrication are the images. It's also the labels we put on things, good, bad, but the, the thing that really affects is the imaginings. You ever daydream about something going awry? It's not necessarily a thinking, but you're imagining something. Our images are very convincing and our images and our daydreams send subliminal messages to the unconscious and those messages really get down in there. So we have to be careful of what we're fantasizing about. What is the topic of our imaging day to day? And with mindfulness, as mindfulness increases and becomes more clear, you'll start to see that the mind is fantasizing constantly, constantly fantasizing, constantly talking to itself. And we need to be, be careful because it could be fantasizing about something that's unskillful, unhealthy. We can be talking ourselves into some kind of spiral without even thinking about it until the mood has already become negative. Loving kindness can also be done as a mental fabrication. We can imagine people being happy right? Visualization meditations are mental fabrication. That's where this comes from. So sometimes in a lot of traditions, particularly Tibetan Buddhism, there's a lot of visualization practice, a visualization of deities, visualizations of becoming compassionate beings. Anytime you visualize something going well, that's a positive mental fabrication. It's highly encouraged in meditation practice, and it can be done in loving kindness. That's just the easiest example I would encourage this though too, as a practice um, for a type of positive meditation practice. If you're going into a situation and you're afraid of the situation not going well, maybe it's a relationship and you have to have a tough conversation with somebody, spend five or 10 minutes engaging in positive mental fabrication. Imagine the situation going well. Imagine you showing up in that meeting skillfully. Imagine you in that meeting being eloquent, composed, kind, attentive, patient. Mental fabrication exercises are really incredible because they can build self-esteem, practicing them over and over again. Imagining yourself successful in a situation can uproot some of those deep negative um, fantasies or images that you have of yourself that you've inherited from the choir of voices that we get from childhood all the way up into adulthood. So mental and verbal fabrications are really important ways of encouraging happiness um, to be increased in our lives. It's very participatory, so to speak. Now again, why would one sit down and practice mental fabrication, bodily fabrication, verbal fabrication? It presumes that you have a view that you can get out of your suffering. That suffering is something you're participating in. It, it, it presumes that you've already said, you know what? I'm going to look at the world as a place that I can have some agency, where I can have some autonomy, and I'm going to engage in skillful actions to cultivate well-being for myself so I can live a life that is joyful, a life that is skillful, 
a life that is loving and compassionate. I am going to choose to show up in the world skillful moment to moment by participating in this way. This is the way the Four Noble Truths encourage a life of joy and happiness because the Four Noble Truths inspire us to fabricate consciously, to participate moment to moment in ways that restore love and restore gentleness and restore grace and ease in our life. Hmm. <laughs> earlier today, <laughs> earlier today, I was thinking to myself, and I do this often because I have a story in my head that um, I don't have anything to say. <laughs> so I have this story that I don't have anything to say. And um, it's so every time I get up here to talk, I always think, but what if I don't have anything to say? And then, of course, I have something to say, which happens every week. But I was just laughing because I just looked at the clock. I was like, oh, once again, I've come here and I have something to say about the Dharma, even though my story in my head is I don't really have anything to say about the Dharma. So bringing this all together, it's important that we look at our views. How do we view the world? How do we view how we want to show up in our life? And that really is the foundation of the Dharma. The Buddha encourages us to take responsibility, to be inspired by the potentiality of freedom and happiness, and to take on the view that if we can be free, that's contagious. That freedom and happiness will impact everybody that we touch. Everybody that we come across can be positively impacted by who we are as people in the world. And that having a conscious view will lead to conscious and skillful behaviors. And so these behaviors of fabricating positivity is something that we do for ourselves and we do for all beings. We do so everyone can share in the merits of our practice. And since so many of our views are unconscious, it is really important to ask yourself, who am I in the world? Who do I want to show up as? And what would I need to do to show up as that person? Right? Who do I want to be? And what would I have to do to be that person? That really is the path of the Dharma. And the more we practice, the easier it is um, to do that. Let's um, plop back into the present moment for two, three minutes and uh, get situated here with some loving kindness so we go out on a warm and gladdening note for our evening. Get comfortable. Let's, let's offer some well-wishing here. Let's take a long, slow, deep breath. Bodily fabrication. Breathe in. Breathe out. Bring awareness back into the body, the sitting body. Take note of your mood. An hour plus later, what does the body feel like? What is the mood in this moment? Take another long, slow, deep breath in through the nose and out through the mouth. And let's, let's call to the altar of our hearts something positive that's going on in our life. Bring to mind circumstance, a person, a place, something that brings you joy, something that makes you smile. Imagine this person, this place, this circumstance. What's going well for you? If you're imagining it, that's mental fabrication right there. Picture someone who's cared for you, listened to you, mentored you. Bring into your heart the awareness of something good in your life. If you're here tonight, there's something going well. Some privilege you have, something that makes you smile, giggle, laugh child or a pet, partner, benefactor, as they say in Buddhism. And try this as well. Just smile. Bring, bring a smile to your face, bodily fabrication. Watch what happens. 
Imagine goodness. Breathing in goodness, breathing out goodness. There is still goodness in this life, in this moment, in this world. And let's take this sense of goodness, this sense of gratitude, and let's spread it out to all beings. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings be safe. May all beings feel love. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings know true love and true happiness, have a sense of safety and security in the world. May all beings share in the merits of our practice, share in the merits of our time together, coming together to learn, to cultivate joy, to cultivate awakening. May all beings share in our awakening. Let us breathe in love, breathe out compassion for all beings, and bringing close to our hearts a special shout out for those caregivers out there taking care of families, caring for friends, caring for parents. So much caring going on in the world people caring for each other, sacrificing to care for each other. This is goodness. There is still so much goodness alive and well in the world. May all beings know true love, true happiness. May all beings be cared for, being safe and secure in this life. May all beings share in the merits of our practice. Thanks again, my friends, for joining me. Delightful as always to see you.